if you can uh, if you can take your seat back i suggest we uh, we move to the um, to the next session uh, we have heard a lot this morning and also this afternoon uh, about globalization technological change and we are very fortunate uh, to have with us uh, Richard Baldwin, uh, who authored uh, a couple of years ago uh, a much acclaimed book published by uh, Harvard University Press titled The Great Convergence, Information Technology and the New Globalization. And for those of you who may not have read the book, uh, you will learn uh, a lot of very fascinating information I think in this, uh, in this lecture. Richard is really an extraordinary economist. He is a professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute uh, in Geneva. As many of you will know, he is the founder and editor-in-chief of Vox uh, EU, founded in 2006, and was, until a couple of months ago, uh, first the director and then the president of CPR, the Center for European Policy uh, research, the premier network of economists in Europe and more uh, globally. <clears throat> Richard has a very distinguished uh, career. He has been a visiting professor at uh, Oxford, visiting professor at MIT. He started his academic career at Columbia University, uh, where he was an assistant professor, then an associate professor, and then moved to uh, Geneva in uh, 1991, where he has been a professor since. Uh, he was a senior staff economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the early 90s, and he has, he has occupied various advisory uh, functions with different governments in the US, in Europe, and or also in Japan. Richard has really an uh, outstanding uh, publishing uh, record. In addition to, uh, to the book that he will discuss today, he has written a number of uh, other books, uh, a famous uh, textbook on uh, European economic integration, already the fifth uh, edition. Six, uh, no. Sixth now, yeah. uh, co-written with, uh, with Charles Whiplosh, a book published by uh, uh, Princeton University Press, and then a book that you had written back in the early 90s on an integrated Europe uh, published by uh, CPR Press. But Richard, you have published uh, many, many uh, really path-breaking articles, not only international economics, international trade, but uh, on, uh, on growth and uh, on, uh, on economic uh, geography. <coughs> now, some of those articles uh, you wrote with your old thesis advisor at MIT, uh, Richard has a PhD with uh, Paul Krugman, with whom he has written uh, a number of important articles. He got his PhD uh, from MIT in 1986. And uh, Richard and I, we go back to a uh, long time ago, uh, 40 years ago, 40 years ago when I was fortunate uh, to have Richard as a, as a student, as an undergraduate student in the United States. He wrote his undergraduate uh, thesis with me. And I can confess and uh, proudly so that uh, already then uh, I learned uh, a lot from him and for 40 years, uh, I'm really proud to say that uh, I've learned a lot from my star student. Richard, I want to learn one for you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> well, thank you. I think we should clap for that. It was just so amazing. Thank you. Um, well, thank you, Andre, for those kind words. I, I was going to say the other thing, that, I, that he was my first professor of economics, and I'm still learning from him for 40 years, so thanks for that. Let me uh, thank uh, Guntram for giving me this opportunity to share my ideas with this big gathering of makers and shakers. And actually, honestly, Andre, they, they make me nervous. Um, I, I guess most of you work for European institutions. How, how many of you work for European institutions here? Yeah. And I, I guess some of you are academics like me. How many are academics? And I, I, what, what do the rest of you do? I guess you have real, <laughs> you have real jobs, I guess. Um, so it makes me nervous because that means that there's oh, surely somebody in this room who knows more about any one of the facts that I'm going to talk about than I do. Uh, and, and, and please don't interrupt me if I make a small factual mistake. Um, 
but I, I, in my own defense, I think I probably had more time to think about the things you don't have time to think about. You know, the, the big picture, the, the big thing stuff, the fluffy stuff. Uh, that's what I do for a living. And I hope that this fluffy stuff helps us organize our thinking about this incredibly complex, fast-changing, and crazy world that we're in today, especially as concerns globalization. So let's get started, shall we? Let's try that again. Let's get started, shall we? Yes. There we go, okay. Now what I wanna do today is offer a broader perspective on globalization. You see, I think many people are misthinking globalization. I think they're using 20th century thought paradigms to puzzle out what's happening in the 21st century, and I think they're making some real mistakes. Moreover, I'm firmly convinced that future globalization will be very different than the globalization we've known in the past and the globalization that we know now. And to understand that, I want to put this all into a broader perspective of globalization, a very simple one, which hopefully will change the way you think about it. To get started, what I'm gonna do in the next three slides is make a prima facie case that globalization has changed radically, at least twice. And therefore, it's not so unlikely that it will change radically going forward. This is exhibit A. What I'm looking at is world shares of GDP on the vertical axis and a timeline that goes from the year 1000 up to the current year. Tracking two groups of countries, India and China on the one hand and the G7 on the other hand. You know the G7, right? It's the four big European countries, US, Japan, and Canada. How Canada got in there, I have no idea. But maybe, maybe the US was lonely. Probably regret it now, though. Now, if you go way back to the year 1000, India and China had half the world GDP, half the world's income and outcome, because they had half the world's population. And the G7 had about 10% of the world's income and output, because they had about 10% of the population. You see, the thing is, in the year 1000, everybody was poor. I mean, if you weren't a prince, a pirate, or a priest, you were, in essence, one or two crops away from starvation. That's the way everybody lived. So therefore, the per capita incomes weren't different. Your share of world GDP was your share of population. And back then, as in now, about half the world lives in India and China. And you can see, for 18 centuries, nothing happened. That's what you could call the great stagnation. And then around 1820, when historians, economic historians tell us modern globalization started, something started to change. The green dots, which had sort of gradually moved up to 20%, mostly because Canada and the US were populated, soared over the next 170 years from a fifth up to two thirds. World had never seen anything like that before. And at the same time, China and India plummeted from about half down to about 10% or less. Now that is when we set up all of our globalization paradigms, what we call trade theory. David Ricardo did his thing just a few days, a few years before this started. Krugman, Huxoline, all our trade models are understood, were designed to help us understand the green dots going up. And as you all noticed, something changed around the 1980s. Since the 1980s, the G7 share of world income has gone from two-thirds to under a half in two decades, two and a half decades. Again, nobody's ever seen anything like that. I like to call that the great convergence because, of course, India and China are coming back up to where they used to be. The green dots going up, that's the great divergence, according to historians like uh, Pumerit. The great convergence is going on, but the main thing I want with this is to point out that if you're trying to think about the green dots going down, using the intellectual infrastructure that helped you understand the green dots going up, you're probably missing a few tricks. Now what I want to do is offer a broader par paradigm, a broader perspective on globalization, which helps us understand how and why these things changed 
And as a bonus, I'll use that to try and project how globalization will change going forward. But let me show you two more slides before that. The first is global manufacturing change. This is focusing on the last part from 1970 to 2010. 1970 is when modern data on uh, manufacturing output starts. Now you can see the G7's global share of manufacturing coasts down slightly from about 70% to 65% in these first two decades, 70s and 80s, and then it starts to fall rapidly. Now it's down below a half. Now if you look at world manufacturing output on the right scale here, oops, you'll see that it is a straight line since it's in logs, that means constant growth. In other words, nothing radical happened to world manufacturing output, just its location. It moved out of the G7. Now where did it move out? We are talking about shares, so you have to add up to 100. And here's where it is. The share of world manufacturing, uh, here's the G7 coming down, that's what it just reproduces the one we saw before. And if you look at the seven countries, the seven largest industrializing countries, they account for all of it. The 18 percentage points that were lost by the G7 and the two percentage points that Danny Rodericks calls premature deindustrialization. The whole rest of the world, a couple hundred countries in that rest of the world. Now that is astounding. The change was concentrated in just seven rapidly industrializing countries, and in fact, one of them alone accounts for most of that 20%. And what I'd like to point out is that's not the way trade theory works. So if you've been thinking about this as trade costs come down, countries' existing comparative advantage in labor-intensive industry manifests itself because they can start to export, it would not all have shown up in seven countries. This globalization is not working the way the 19th century and the 20th century globalization worked. Okay, now, what I want to do is, in the next 15 minutes, talk about this broader perspective. And to do that, I'm going to be, I, I tried this with articles, with Greek, uh, with regressions, Greek uh, symbols and stuff. I wrote, I published this all in, our, I think 12 people read those articles. And, and I think six of them understood it, and three of them hated it. So, and fortunately, the other three were my referees, so it did get published. So what I've decided is to go to a little bit broader audience to sort of simplify, to clarify. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make some radical simplifications to hopefully help guide your thinking about what's important in the world in a slightly different direction, or a broader direction in particular. So here it is, this is my theory of globalization. Arbitrage drives globalization. Now let me explain what I mean by arbitrage here, just for a little minute, by talking about something other than globalization. When people go to Germany, they try the beer, because the beer in Germany is rather good. When people go to France, they try the wine, because the wine is rather good. Globalization is driven by companies exploiting differences like this. You see, some countries are better at producing some things than others, and the companies make them in countries that are especially good at them, and they sell them elsewhere. Now, for most of the last two centuries, that selling elsewhere involved goods, and only goods, because the only way you could get stuff out of a country that exploited its advantages was in the form of goods. That's going to change. What I'd like to look at is arbitrage in three things, not just goods. The goods is the classic way of thinking about it. Goods, know-how, and labor services. And I'd like to associate arbitrage being constrained by three costs. Trade costs, which is the cost of moving goods, communication costs, which is the cost of arbitraging know-how, and face-to-face -face costs, which is the cost of arbitraging labor services. And moreover, when you're done, when we're done with this lecture, I'd like you to think about goods as the old globalization, or I, I, in 2006, when I first wrote about this stuff, I called it the first unbundling. Know-how as the new globalization, which I used to call the second unbundling, 
and future globalization as labor services, which, well, sometimes I call the third unbundling. So let's go through that. Uh, what I want to do is explain this framework and do it by strapping it onto the back of a quick gallop through two centuries of globalization history. And since I have about seven minutes to do that, I will be skipping a few less important details. So if I miss your favorite globalization moment, like the Congress of Vienna or something, please don't raise your hand and say you, you forgot about uh, Napoleon. Okay. Goods arbitrage begins. The cost of moving goods falls radically, the cost of moving ideas and people's falls much less. So basically there was a technological breakthrough, steam power, which opened up the interiors of continents and closed up the distance across the oceans. And that meant we had lower cost of moving goods. And although it did lower the cost of communication and face-to-face -face a bit, the real radical change was the ability to move this goods over long distance. Low trade costs made high volume trade feasible, national comparative advantage made it profitable. So here what it was before, before the steam revolution, production and consumption were bundled together physically at the village level. Economies were at the village level all across the world, that's why everybody was equally poor. People were tied to the land because that's what almost everybody did. And if they needed anything produced, it had to be made within walking distance because it was so expensive to move anything and dangerous over distance. So what you had was dispersed production and dispersed consumption all tied to agriculture. And that's why they didn't grow. That's why they were even during the great stagnation. Now, because of the trade costs falling, production and consumption could unbundle. And because of the differences between countries, production moved to countries who were especially good at making it, and those countries then started importing the rest of the stuff. Or as David Ricardo says, import what you do best, import the rest. Or export what you do best, import the rest. Now that's trade theory. That's Ricardo, Hexroline. Basically every trade model, if you're thinking about globalization, takes as given the comparative advantage of nations. That the nation is itself the right unit of analysis. Second, nations are only connected by goods. And as globalization, you lower the trade costs, you get more trade in goods, people specialize, that's globalization. Now, that misses a, an important thing. Production micro-clustered, triggering innovation and modern growth, but the innovation stays in the G7. So if you look over here, before globalization, it was a very small world and production was very dispersed and very small scale. So there wasn't much innovation. For example, if you were making nails for 12 families, how much would you gain if you actually cut 10% off the cost of making them? So the demand for innovation was very low because the scale of production was low. Moreover, the supply of innovation was very low because you had to walk a few hours to, to go and talk to the next blacksmith. So you couldn't share ideas. When steam power lowered the cost of goods and made the world market, firms decided to adopt scale-intensive production techniques, which turned out to be very complex. Now, to organize this complexity, they organized it in factories and industrial districts, not to save on trade cost, but to save on communication and face-to-face -face cost. In essence, England did not industrialize. Two or three cities in England industrialized. Factories in those cities industrialized. We got a micro-clustering which triggered the modern bonfire of innovation, which led to industrialization, rising incomes, more innovation, and that's when those dots start taking off. But the point is, is because trade costs came down, but communication costs did not, the innovation stayed in the G7 countries. So the big divergence happened because trade costs came down to allow arbitrage in goods, but communication costs did not come down to allow arbitrage and know-how. So you can imagine what's going to happen next. Any guesses? Anybody read the book? Okay. Anyways, so I'll, sh I'll show you some statistics and then, then, then uh, I'll keep you in suspense for one more slide. Okay, so the North industrializes the South not. Here's uh, uh, Paul Baruch's data from 1750 to, to 1913. 
and you see the UK takes off first, the US catches up eventually. India and China actually de-industrialize during this time, and Japan is flat for a bit and then takes off after the Meiji Restoration. So if you've ever wondered why India and China are so upset about the world trading system, it's those purple dots going down and this deindustrialization where they think the whole system was, was, was cooked against them. Okay, and you get the great divergence. So that's the first, that essentially explains trade theory together with Krugman's new economic geography which led to the clustering. Now, information and communication technology you can tell we're on the second phase because I've changed colors. You know, that, you know, that's what you get when you pay for somebody to fix up your slides. I, I highly recommend it. It's blue, see, in the, in the, the, the communication costs are blue. You see that? Okay. Um, just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page here. So this is the new globalization. Information and communication technology lowers the cost of moving ideas, so now it's easy to move goods and ideas. The ICT revolution makes offshoring feasible, vast wage differences make it profitable. So before, factories and industrial districts were micro-clustered because it was just too difficult to organize activity over any long distances. So I can look out and see the number of gray hairs here, and surely some of you organize conferences like this by airmail, like I did when I was a kid. It took you a year to organize this. Now just think about trying to produce the tails of, or the, the leading edge of the wings in Scotland for an Airbus, and the rest in Toulouse by airmail. That just wasn't feasible. Internet made reorganization feasible by allowing two-way communications. Now once that was feasible, it turned out that some of these stages didn't really belong together, and they dispersed. That's the second unbundling, the unbundling of production facilities. And it's all coordinated by ITC. Now many will have noticed this, there's many names for it, slicing up the value chains, global value chains, fragmentation, all sorts of names for it, but you're focusing on the wrong thing. People focus on the investment, trade in parts and components, the offshore jobs, but that's not what caused the revolution. The revolution was that knowledge arbitrage begins. G7 firms offshore know-how with the jobs in the factories. So before, the knowledge was staying at home because all the knowledge sharing was happening within the factory, all the innovation was staying in the factory, or at least within the firm, or at least within the industrial district. Now, the light bulbs are crossing borders. There was a systemic export of firm-specific knowledge from G7 countries to nearby developing countries teaching them to do things that they couldn't possibly have done without that knowledge transfer, and that knowledge transfer couldn't have happened without the ICT revolution. That's why the dots started going down, and that's why the G7 deindustrialized so rapidly. Moreover, it denationalized comparative advantage. Before, taking the boundaries of technology as national was harmless. Now, of course, there's no such thing as German technology. It's German firms who own the technology. But before the ICT revolution, they were more or less forced to exploit it in Germany. Now, they can move their knowledge out to Poland and Hungary, no problem whatsoever. So the boundaries of competitiveness follow global value chains, not national boundaries, at least in manufacturing. So it completely changed the nature of competition in manufacturing. Just to sort of pound that down, because this is really the new perspective that I want you to, to be thinking about, not just goods, but know-how. Think about it this way. Pre-ICT revolution, knowledge is stuck in the G7. So if you think about headquarter economies and factory economies, then in the headquarter economies, they had high know-how to labor ratios, which led to high wages. Or another way to put it is G7 firms had to exploit their technology with G7 labor. Or flipping it around, the G7 labor had a quasi-monopoly on the technology of their firms, so what was good for GM eventually was good for GM workers. Now, uh, the global value chains open a pipeline for globalization as knowledge arbitrage, so this know-how could be moved directly to the low-wage labor and still keep control of it. And what that gave us was high-tech, 
low-wage combination in manufacturing. Before this, you had high-tech, high-wage in Germany, Japan, and the US, or low-tech, low-wage in Brazil, Russia, Argentina, wherever, South Africa. Now you have high-tech, low-wage in Poland, in China, and uh, Mexico, and et cetera. That completely changed the world, both for the, the seven industrialized who got the offshore factory and all that know-how, and the ones who didn't, who essentially saw their import substitution strategy destroyed by global value chains. I was in Argentina last week, and they're wondering, why can't we be like China? Now, so this is where they went. This is why it only went to the seven. And you'll notice all those seven, maybe not India, but all the seven are close to Detroit, Nagoya, or Stuttgart. In essence, face-to-face -face is still expensive. So when you offshore these things, you tend to put them relatively close by. Or, you know, I'm simplifying to clarify. Of course, there's, there's complexities there. But the other thing to keep in mind when you think about China, and China is a very large share of this, is geography matters. So if you take a triangle between Beijing, Tokyo, and Hong Kong, there's 2,000 kilometers between two, ed two of those points, 3,000 between the other points, and in between there is all the manufacturing of China, all the manufacturing of Hong Kong, all the manufacturing of Taiwan, all the manufacturing of Korea, and all the manufacturing of Japan. 40% of world manufacturing is in that triangle, together with 1.6 billion people. Now, if you are gonna set up a factory and you needed an industrial base, where would you put it? And as I told you, I was in Argentina last week uh, and I was trying to explain to them that there's the distance between Buenos Aires and Rio is 2,500 2, kilometers. There is no other point on that triangle and the only thing in between is, is Sao Paulo. So it's really not good enough, probably 1% of world manufacturing. So when you wonder why didn't this go to Africa and South America, you have to keep in mind face-to-face -face constraints and agglomeration. Okay, now, that explains the great convergence. In essence, the ICT revolution allowed a massive transfer of TFP from the north to the south, but not like knowledge going through the air generally. G7 firms took their firm-specific know-how and moved it to specific nearby developing countries and tried hard to prevent that from spreading. That's why the industrial revolution, the GVC revolution, was so concentrated. But people thinking about this in the old way, they said, well, if I just embrace the, if I embrace the Washington consensus, the factories will come here too. But that's because they're thinking uh, uh, too narrowly. Okay, now let me see, how much time do we have for, so do I have an hour and a half left? Or? No, 20 minutes, okay. So now I want to talk about future globalization. So the future's unknowable, but also inevitable. You like that one? I found it on the internet. I still don't quite understand what it meant, but it, you know, it sounded appropriate. Moreover, it reminds me that from now on, I'm just making it up, because we're talking about the future. And you're always making it up with the future. But as you know, the future will come no matter whether you make it up or not. So you might as well think about it. And I also do it to remind you that I have this very bad habit of sounding like I believe everything I say. And from now on, I mean, up till now, I actually do believe everything. And I'm sure I could, could justify everything if I wasn't too busy to do any real work. But from now on, I'm making it up. So I'm going to use the logic of this framework to talk about future globalization and how different we'll be and some of the consequences. That's the last chapter of my old book and the topic of my new book. Did I mention my new book yet? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So we'll get to that. Okay. So arbitrage constrained by three costs, trade costs, communication costs, face-to-face -face costs, two are down. What happens when digital technology rela relaxes the third constraint on globalization? Now, what I want to point out, this is where we're going, is future globalization is going to be about office jobs, not factory and farm jobs. Many, many people are thinking about automation and globalization as it affects these guys, because that's what's been going on for 25 years or two centuries, depending upon how long you look at it. That's a serious mistake. For one thing, only about 10% of our workforces are in factories anymore, so it, it's really a rounding error. The other is that these guys are not ready for it. Neither the automation, 
nor the globalization. In fact, they probably got university degrees to get out of the traded goods sectors, and they think they're in a non-traded goods sector, but digital technology is going to change that reality. In particular, I'd like to focus on, this is in my new book, the idea of telemigration. People sitting in one nation, working in offices in another nation. In essence, it's international freelancing, or international telecommuting, or international remote work. I'm going to argue that the wage gap makes it profitable, Digitech makes it possible, and I think it's going to happen very, very fast. So uh, most of you, I'm, uh, all of you will be aware that the largest arbitrage opportunity in the world left today is wages, our wages, salaries. Quality adjusted are often 10 to 1, sometimes 20 to 1, for even things like uh, that are standardized, doctors, nurses, accountants, bookkeepers, computer programmers, there's enormous differences. And those are not arbitrage now because services are largely non-traded. Now, that non-traded thing is changing. So let me, uh, let me shock you into a new reality or new perspective to get off the global value chains um, by, by talking about uh, something that doesn't exist. Now, let's suppose we lived in a Star Trek world and you could, or we could, teleport costlessly, say, from Warsaw to New York in the morning, work in a New York office, and teleport back in the evening. And let's suppose you were an accountant, and uh, roughly speaking, New York accountants get paid eight times what a Polish accountant gets. Now, if they could teleport, do you think the Polish accountant would have an interest in doing so? The answer is obviously yes, because he'd get a higher salary. And do you think the New York accounting office would hire some of these people? The answer is obviously yes, because they would cost a lot less. Now, we don't live in a Star Trek world. We can't teleport. But digital technology is moving us closer to that all the time at an astounding rate. And we won't get to teleporting, but we will get to a situation where people will be able to work in offices in other countries without leaving their countries and do useful things. Not everything, and using remote foreign workers won't be good as using domestic actual workers, but the foreign remote workers will be a whole lot cheaper. So what do you think is going to happen? Now, that's the, what I want to, let me go through a little bit faster here. To use the same thing, basically the pipeline, digital technology opens a pipeline for the labor to go to the high wages without leaving the country. And uh, if, you, if you've been involved in web development or, or IT development or app development, this stuff happens all the time right now in those areas. I'm just saying it's going to go mainstream at a, at a rate that people don't quite understand. Now, I want to talk about four factors that are going to bring this future globalization in faster than most people believe. The first is domestic te telecommuting. So how many of you have telecommuted at least half a day into your office within the last month? Please raise your hands. Okay. Your jobs are definitely, if you want to know where this is going to hit first, it's the people who just raised your hands. <laughs> now, here's what it is, is our companies and ourselves are rearranging the workflow to make it easy to slot in remote workers. And it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination that once they've managed this with this new software, collaborative software like Slack and Basecamp and Trello and all these sorts of things, once they've managed that, they'll figure out that it costs them one-tenth to get a foreigner. Now, they won't fire all of you at once, but they'll start to replace people uh, with that. That's, that's the, the basic argument. The second part is online freelancing platforms. So these are like matchmaking sites, like an eBay for services. And if you haven't looked at these, you really should. They're, they're growing very, very fast, and there's a platform competition going on in these things. This, the next uh, you know, several hundred billion dollar company will be one of these. The largest one right now is called Upwork, and they have millions of freelancers registered in a wide range of skills from over 100 countries. They processed a billion dollars of freelancing revenue internationally last year. Now, uh, Amazon 
Mechanical Turk has one, there's a British one called Fiverr, there's lots of them, and the Chinese entrant uh, just entered in English language. It used to be called, well, it's still called Zubaiji in Mandarin, and they have uh, tens of millions of people registered in Chinese, in China, for China's uh, off uh, freelancing, and now they've just opened an English language thing. The third is machine translation. Machine translation is no longer Star Trek. If you have not tried machine translation in the last six months, you really have to. And it's a shame, I was hoping there'd be some simultaneous translators in the room that, that uh, I could suggest that they start taking night courses in a bookkeeping. Now, this is Star Trek, one of my favorite. How many of you have watched Star Trek on TV? How many of you know what a TV is? So, never mind. Now, I, I remember this one. Uh, this is episode is where they have the universal translator. And I was in high school at the time taking French, struggling with French. And I thought that would be so cool. I would just take my cell phone and say, hey Siri, how do you say in French? Do you speak French? Okay, what would you like to translate? How do you spell French? Okay, no. what would you like to translate? Okay, let's try it. What, what should we say? Okay, so how about this? I knew I shouldn't have tried this one. Let's, <laughs> let, let me move on. But it, it does work. I, that's the first time I tried it in public, but I, I, I tried it, it works at the dinner table. Anyways, so the, the translator uh, was so cool because it'd be automatic, but that's what's happened. The big thing is in 2016, the UN put its matched database, hand-translated uh, database of sentences between all the six major languages, and the EU Parliament did the same, the Canadian Parliament did the same, the Commission's doing the same, and once they get the big data set, this machine learning stuff can, can train them. So if you're in one of the major languages, it's actually pretty good now, and getting better at an exponential pace, because they're actually gathering data as they, as they use it. It's right now, Google Translate is free on your cell phone, verbal, written, whatever, it's pretty good. Skype translator, there's an option on Skype where if you click on it, you can speak in Spanish and they, they hear you in English and vice versa. Not perfect, but pretty amazing. YouTube auto-translates captions. Microsoft Translator is an add-on to Outlook mail, so you can write your mail in English and right-click and turn it into French, and it's at least as good as the French if you tried to write it, or at least mine, and on and on and on. What this will do is create a global talent tsunami. Just take China alone. Eight million people graduate from Chinese universities and they're underemployed and underpaid in China. Most of them cannot access the international online freelancing market because they don't speak good enough English. Now they do. And the same is true of everybody around the world. Basically, anybody with some sort of sellable skills, a laptop and know how to use it, will be joining the service market soon. People who find themselves very special now, and it's not gonna be low workers, this is not manufacturing, we're talking about service jobs, and the ones that will be most profitable to replace are the highest skilled ones. It's, it, it will be difficult, but it'll do something. Okay, so fourth is advanced telecommunications, this is the most obvious one. Uh, telepresence rooms is a classic one. How many of you use telepresence rooms here? Lots of, lots of you have used it. So basically, this is telemigration. These guys are trading, selling services, working together in each other's office without actually being there and creating value. This is a telepresence robots. This is my favorite one. So this is a, she's a manager visiting a field office. And what she does is she leaves this robot, which is essentially Skype on the wheels. She leaves it in the office and whenever she wants, she can fire it up and drive it around the office. So, you know, she can come look over your shoulder to see if you're playing solitaire or working on the spreadsheet, she can hold meetings, and people say that the physicality of the robot actually increases the connection a lot, which is why it's commonly used in hospitals for doctors to visit patients rather than just by telephone, because apparently the doctor has more authority. This, this happens all the time. They're a little expensive, but I'm sure they'll get cheaper. Holograms, virtual reality, this is Malenchon, that's Modi, this stuff is for real. Uh, it's getting cheaper and better, uh, and thanks for listening. So this is my book, and this is the new book, The Globotics Upheaval, Globalization, Robotics, and the Future of Work. So thank you.
great presentation. We have uh, about 20 minutes, I would say, for, uh, for discussion. Let me, let me kick off the, uh, the discussion. Uh, and connected to the discussion we had this morning, in the uh, panel on uh, where there was the discussion on trade with uh, Miar uh, Arsenius when we talked about uh, geopolitics, uh, there was a lot of connection between that panel and this panel, and uh, obviously globalization, technological change, China. So let me, let me bring in China. Uh, I think in your charts, and I think they were really uh, very fascinating charts, uh, you showed you know, the G7 are declining in manufacturing, and their share of, uh, of production is being taken over by essentially seven uh, I don't know, uh, Rapid industrial rapidly rapid. industrializing country, but among those, as you said, China really accounts for, for much of it, even though we know Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, they were the early risers, but their size was so much smaller uh, that they would not have done the kind of changes that you, you showed. So yeah. China is, uh, is crucial. Now, in the story that you told, uh, arbitrage, the letter A, arbitrage, was the central world. And uh, arbitrage is driven here by the private sector. It's firms. It's firms that are from the G7 countries that are transferring technology, right? That's the story. That's the arbitrage. They're transferring technology to some of those rapidly industrializing country, but really seven among them, and among those seven, one key country, China. Now let's say I was um, Danny Rodrick. You mentioned Danny in your, in your talk. So let's say I was Danny Rodrick, or I were a trade negotiator. Mia Arsenius from the commission, mm. chief of staff of uh, Commissioner Malmstrom, or I were a uh, U.S. trade negotiator. I don't think I would be using the word arbitrage here to tell the story. I would be using a letter down the alphabet, not at the bottom, but I would use the letter G, the letter G for government. They would say, it's government. And this is the problem that we have with China. That's a bit the discussion we had this morning, the rules of the WTO, China not blink, playing by the rules. It's not arbitrage, it's not driven by those firms, it's driven by the government, the government of China. And I think that's the story that Danny Roderick, from a different perspective, would tell as well, right? Uh, it's smart government, it's smart industrial policy, right? That, that's what Danny uh, writes about. So. How do you uh, reconcile the two? Is it an alternative story? Is your story embed the other story? It's <coughs> arbitrage and government. It's arbitrage much before government. Government doesn't play a role. What, uh, what do you respond to those people? Both the trade negotiators and let's say the analysts like Danny Roderick. Sure, so there are, there are other interpretations of these trends uh, and, and this idea that China was incredibly clever and managed to do something that nobody had ever done before. Uh, and then there's another story that, as it turned out, India was doing something incredibly clever, new that they'd never done before. And then there's another story that in Central Europe, they had let go, and these things all happened at the same time. It's sort of amazing that they happened at the same time. In Central America, Central Europe, and East Asia, but nowhere else. Now, what I think is basically Good government is a necessary condition, but not sufficient. And I think there's lots and lots of governments around the world who were very smart, tried very hard, and they did not get the industry because the firms weren't willing to go there. So I would just say it's a sufficient, but not necessary condition. But let's suppose you insisted on the old way of thinking about globalization, that globalization is about countries. The correct level of analysis is a country's competitiveness, a country's government, and the only thing that's crossing borders is, is goods, then you have to invent something that explains it. And that is, it went to seven countries, and it turns out those seven countries had wonderful governments, especially China. 
Now, if you actually look at what happened in China, and it started in 1990, not in 2001, where the China shock people can't come in with the WTO. What happened at first was processing trade. And we actually have very good data on it. So companies would come in, process, and re-export, and there was a duty-free kind of thing that's happening. Uh, and that was very clearly G7 multinationals coming into China and teaching them to do things that they couldn't possibly have done themselves. And if you looked in those factories and you asked, are they using Chinese technology or are they using German, Japanese, or American technology, it was obvious that it was American technology. Now that doesn't fit into the story. So then you have to ask, why did the technology go to, to China? And part of it is, actually they had, uh, they had a government who did what it said and said what it did and was super pro-open, but there was a lot of other countries that were the same in, with the Washington consensus and didn't get anything, especially in South America and uh, less so in Africa. So that's the way I think about it. I think that the big switch was the capacity to offshore, and that was a technological change. And where it offshored too depend upon many, many other things. But I don't think China being a smart government and all of a sudden waking up in 90s, and all of a sudden Eastern Europe woke up, and all of a sudden Central America woke up, these things all happened between 85 and 95 globally. And I think that it, it and also if you look at the micro of what it is, the offshoring brought technology with it. And one thing we know about growth is technology is the core of growth. So to me, that's the way I tell it. But now you're going to ask, let me just add one more thing. And that is these seven rapid industrializers uh, triggered a commodity super cycle. So as it turns out, half the world population lives in one of these seven. And they, their rapid industrialization led to rapid income growth, which led to a commodity super cycle, which brought along a whole other group of countries that we call emerging markets that had nothing to do with the new globalization. So there was a kind of a jet fuel based on north to south flow of firm specific knowledge, which triggered an event which then brought along a other bunch of people. And many people who aren't thinking that what's crossing borders change say, ah, now south-south trade, the south merging markets, you know, you don't even know what emerging markets means. But I would say that some of them did it on industry, some of them did it on commodities, and they're not at all the same uh, thinking. Great. So let me take uh, let me take a few questions. Martin, first. Yeah, questions here. Thanks, Martin Sandberg from the Financial Times. Uh, thanks, Richard. That was uh, really exciting. I have a question about the second and the third unbundling. So the second one, splitting up the factory production process is blamed for loss of jobs, manufacturing jobs in the rich countries, right? offshoring, people stealing our jobs, and so on. But as you showed, it was driven by lower wage costs in the emerging countries. So I just want to hear your thought on the counterfactual. If you haven't, if for some reason this unbundling hadn't happened, would all those jobs have stayed, or would just have, that just have created a greater incentive for faster automation, and so you would have had a loss of jobs, not production, but jobs anyway? And on the third unbundling, uh, the digitization, you talked about how that will create a similar phenomenon from rich to poor countries and services. Could it also help something we talked about in the economic session today, the increase of regional inequality within rich countries, which has favored cities partly because of your second unbundling um, uh, mechanism, sort of successful knowledge services gathering in cities. Uh, could it be a way to address and undo some of that increased inequality that's happened between the cores and the peripheries within countries. Thanks. Uh, can you give the microphone? There was somebody just a, a little bit yeah, in front of you. Yes, I have uh, two questions. First of all, um, could it be that globalization brought some deflationary effects? Things became just a lot cheaper uh, more rapidly and therefore, I mean, it was very healthy for the economy everywhere. And second, I deal a lot with software programmers. And um, I recognize completely what you explain, uh, but every arbitrage, as every banker know, eliminates itself. Mm. And today I go to India or other places, not because the developers are cheap, but because they are great. And that is my ultimate constraint, talent. So what's your view on that? And isn't that the next chapter then? Marek? Marek Rombrowski, Brugger. Um, 
I like very much your vision, even if uh, some details will differ in future compare what you presented. But there is, I think, one big problem. Um, how big part of the world can participate in this kind of vision? We have, I think, at least two or maybe three billion people who suffer from illiteracy, very low education. Their countries do not have even, or very weak transport communication infrastructure. So what is the recipe for them? I mean, large part of Africa, Middle East, perhaps South Asia. Thank you. George. Thank you. Uh, in all previous industrial, I'm, tr I'm trying to see a little bit the issue from a kind of uh, industrial revolution, especially disruption through digital technology and obviously globalization. We have seen at least two types of trends up to now. One is that you've got the expansion, you've got uh, through innovation, you know, through gold, jobs and so on, that you have one expansion. At the same time, you've got always in any type, at least of the three up to now big uh, industrial revolutions, uh, huge disruption with the known effects. Uh, what I'm trying to think is that in every also industrial revolution, we have built up uh, resilient institutions through ideas and institutions whereby we have to, they have worked as a shock, shock absorbers. Therefore, we have tried to maintain in this way uh, the, the, the growth uh, pace. Uh, my question would be double. What does it mean what you have your narrative for Europe and where will be the real uh, jobs, sectors, that they're not gonna be affected with this type of trench, because that would be a thing of strategic insight, you know, for Europeans looking for uh, growth right now. Thank you. Thanks, Luis. The, the, lady, the lady at the back there? Yeah. And then two more questions there on that side. Thanks a lot for amazing lecture, Tina Tina Chlodiani from the College of Europe. So what I wanted to ask you is what is the final goal and where are we leading to by all these old, new and uh, future of waves of the globalization? And why I'm asking this because all the trade theory actually, what it predicts is wage equalization and we trade unless the wages are equalized and the gains from the trade are really optimal in a way that we achieve more, um, more equal distribution of the wealth across the countries. And says so it's not really achieved by the old and new waves of globalization. Do you predict that digitalization and the new wave of it will achieve wage equalization? Is this the final goal or something else? Thanks. There is a, a gentleman there next to the next to the pillar who's been asking. Right there. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. Christian Kittitz from the Boston Consulting Group. Thank you. I enjoyed your previous book. I'll look forward to reading this one. Two questions. So one is What's the future of firms? Uh, multinational firms played a huge role in the last uh, globalization. Your examples were a lot about a world where firms actually didn't play a role. It was online marketplaces. Is that what you see? The second question, manufacturing. Uh, so you said, you know, it's not so important anymore. It's entirely right in the statistics. Still, governments and a lot of firms also are interested in what's going on. And I think there's a lot of discussion about whether things are moving back to high-wage countries. For, uh, do you think that's realistic or uh, are we going to see them at the same places that we are seeing them now? And the last question, yeah, right there. Hi there, so thanks a lot. I mean, I thought it was really good. I really love the word robotics. I think it's brilliant and I think, I hope it'll really catch on because I think it summarizes the two things really well. So I was wondering, you know, um, I was actually one of Richard's students at the Graduate Institute. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things you said back in the day, I think 10 to 15 years ago when I, when I listen to you is about allocation of resources and how every time you've created globalization, some job destruction, some job creation, people move into other sectors. Obviously, if you have this in the service trade sector, service sector, it's not clear where people can move. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on there. What you're thinking is there, was there, you know, are we getting to the point where technology is now substituting for jobs or is it also still creating opportunities? And the second one is, I'm wondering whether there's already quite a bit of pushback in terms of non-trade barriers to this. Because even within the EU, which is you know, a very large labor market across countries, in the single market, there's already quite a lot of pushback against the posted workers directive. We had it quite recently with President Macron basically pushing back against Poles sort of working temporarily in France. So I'm wondering to which extent that's also going to be a challenge to robotics going forward. 
Okay, Richard, back sure. to you. Thank you. So let me uh, quickly take these. I may group a couple together. Let me start with Matt, Martin Sanbu. Um, Deindustrialization. What if there had been no information and communication technology? So my view of the world is framed by the new economic geography of Krugman. And Krugman and Venables wrote this famous paper called, I can't remember the exact title, but we used to call it History of the World Part One. And it was basically showing how things subject to agglomeration, like industry, tended to cluster all together. And I think that's what you saw by uh, 1970, 70% of all output of manufacturing was in the G7 countries and stayed there. It only went down a couple percentage over two decades, despite the Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, and Taiwan. And I think it would have stayed that way because it's so lumpy. Basically, it's the old chicken and the egg. You, you can't be competitive in cars unless you have an industrial base, and you can't have an industrial base unless you produce cars. And uh, so I think it probably would have stayed that way, and, and this, this, is what, this is what changed it. But I'll take the opportunity to say that the old way of industrializing, the old way of getting rich, which was going through import substitution, building your industrial base, that was completely killed by this new low-wage, low low high-tech, because they're trying, like in Brazil, trying to do with low-tech, low-wages, and it just doesn't work, especially against, but it's China they're competing against. The second one was regional inequality. So uh, I'm not exactly sure where you're going with that, and I'm not exactly sure how to answer it, but some of the research I did in, in, for the new book suggests that the online freelancing, which is massive in the United States, a lot of it is people who lost jobs in uh, real goods sector in remote work areas starting to work online and earning some money online. And so maybe that's dampening the, the sort of regional inequality in the United States. Uh, globally, uh, I think it will also dampen it because in essence, this sort of telemigration is not subject to agglomeration economies. This is really micro to micro, micro firms exporting. You don't even need business processing size stuff to do this. So I think the agglomeration will disappear and this will allow emerging markets in Africa and Latin America to exploit their real comparative advantage, which is quality adjusted cheap labor. And before, because of the technology, they had to take that cheap labor, put it into a good, and then export the good. That was the only way they could get it out. And since there was agglomeration economies and all of it was in Northeast Asia, the only thing it could do was commodities. And this is gonna allow them to export their, their comparative advantage directly, really at a micro, micro level. Um, so deflationary effects of globalization, very important. Uh, I, I think there's been some papers estimating how large it was, I think it was like, uh, Auer did this paper, I think he, he said it was like one half percent per year for, for the, the two decades or something. The software uh, arbitrage eliminating in itself, that it, at least in software it's true, a lot of it's availability. You, you, like you need to do a project, you need to hire five guys who know how to do Python, go online and you can get them today. If you try and look around in Brussels, it could take you a long time. So I think there's other forms of the competition, but especially because of the machine translation, I think there's gonna be a talent tsunami, and I think the, the pool will open up enormously. So I don't think the wages are going down real fast, maybe for some people. And this wraps into another question. My guess is that this will first affect middle-class people in middle-income developing countries. Not the poorest people. They don't know how to use laptops. They probably don't even have connectivity. Many of them don't even have electricity. What you need is something that's recognizably valuable in the international market. Could be just bookkeeping or figuring out how to sort out your contacts, but it's gonna be people with reasonable level of education in countries, middle-income countries have reasonable connectivity. So that I, I think it will, it will spread the emerging market miracle, but it's not gonna help us with the least developed, country, least developed countries. Um, so the, the, George, the disruption from this. So yeah, the, the second title in my book is Upheaval. So I think that the angry blue-collar workers who've been hit by robots at home and China abroad are going to be joined by a whole bunch of angry white-collar workers who are gonna be hit by white-collar robots and foreign freelancers. 
And I think that will happen faster than most people think. And I think even by the 2020 election, it will be a major theme of, dis of displacement. And in, in, my, in the book, I write up of how the, the last really big backlash happened was the, the anti-globalization movement. I don't know if any of you remember it, in, uh, that happened with the Battle of Seattle. And the way that happened was two completely unconnected groups, labor unions and environmentalists, who used to hate each other, came together and created the anti-globalization movement. And basically the next day it spread worldwide, through the, all the way up to Genoa, and it went on until we had 9-11. But in any case, I think, 99. So I think it's possible that, that uh, this will be extremely disruptive, and people who aren't used to automation, the service sector, and the ones who aren't used to globalization are gonna get it in the neck and it's gonna come at the speed of digital technology and nobody's getting ready for it. Now, where are the jobs, where are the final goals? Now, we can't know where the jobs are. When we went from agriculture to industry, we didn't know about pharmaceuticals or chemicals industries or motors. We didn't know any of that stuff. We knew we were gonna lose our jobs in ag agriculture. We didn't know where they were. But we knew what they would be like. We knew that people would be working with their hands making stuff, goods. And now, when, when we went from industry to services, we didn't know where all those factory and farm workers were gonna go, but we knew what they were gonna do. They were not making goods. Therefore, they were producing services. Telecoms wasn't an industry. Uh, information wasn't an industry. Uh, there, there, all these industries were created. So we cannot know what jobs, but we can think about what those jobs will be like. Thanks especially to Jacques Bougain's uh, McKinsey report. I, I have a long section in the book about what can AI do and not. I basically write up their, uh, their, their report. Now, it turns out that AI, artificial intelligence machine, is good at, just to be simplified to clarify, soft skills. And they're bad at soft skills, they're good at hard skills. And as a consequence, they'll do that. If you have a job that can be codified into a large data set where the question is clear, the outcome is clear, your job will be toast in a couple years because the software robot can do it better for cheaper, doesn't take holidays, doesn't need uh, to pay taxes, doesn't need an office space. It's basically software. And if your job can be done remotely, it's also toast. So what that leaves is jobs that are local, where you actually have to be in the same room and involve human skills. So this is the happy ending in my new book, which my publisher insisted I added. It was, it was much more gloom and gloom. Hollywood. Hollywood, exactly. It, our, our lives, our jobs will be more local, more human, and we'll all be richer. Therefore, we'll have more community. You buy it? Anyways. Good place, good place to end. Right. No, no, let me, let me just say one more thing about the firms. Who knows? It, but look at Snapchat. Snapchat has a group of generalists sitting in the same place and spinning out AI and remote intelligence into projects that they need. That's what they will all look like. Um, and the pushback, I think that has already started the stuff you see pushed back against Uber, that will just be spun out across everything. And ultimately, I think the governments will have to think about slowing it down. And we have a tool for that. It's called employment protection legislation. When this happens, it's not plan A. Plan A is Denmark. But in the next three or four years, we're not all gonna become Denmark. And if people start getting fired at a very rapid pace in white collar and it leads to social disruption, we will have to slow it down and we have the tools. But I'm just throwing that out. So I know that's not the, everybody's been working against employment protection legislation, but we've been worried about displacement in factories that happens over years. This is displacement that's gonna happen in offices where 70% of us work and it's gonna happen in months, a few, you know, in two or three years, it'll be very, very rapid. So how about I stop there? On this very optimistic <laughs> <laughs> note, well, let me, uh, let me thank you uh, really warmly. I think it was really thought-provoking, uh, uh, both the explanation of the past and uh, the forward looking into the coming months, uh, essentially, <laughs> if I understood correctly. Yes, so see you soon see you. and for the next episode. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Do we have coffee breaks? Maybe tell them we have coffee now. Maybe you should tell them. Oh, no, they know. Okay. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Sure, sure. Hello. Yeah. Uh, from Brugal, okay. Yeah.